Welcome to Zensylvania. My name is Eric Adrians, and I'll be your host, tour guide, or master of ceremonies. You decide which. In Zensylvania, I explore motorcycle zen, meditation, tai chi, and a variety of other obsessions which continue to provide me with meaningful, and sometimes unexpected, insights into living the kind of life I want to live and being the kind of person I want to be. I'm not an expert in any of these things. In fact, it would probably be a mistake for me to claim to be an expert in anything at all. But I can be a devoted enthusiast, and I generally try to maintain a beginner's mind when it comes to life and all of the wonderful things there are to learn while living it. I started Zensylvania largely due to the influence of three books. Robert Piercig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Alfred North Whitehead's Process and Reality, and the Zen teachings of Homeless Kodo. So you can count on a whole lot of time spent on those books. But along the way, I include fiction, poetry, philosophy, interviews, and any content that seems to fit the bill. I'm glad that you've decided to visit me here in Pennsylvania. Maybe together we'll be able to figure a few things out. I certainly hope we manage to have a good time. Zensylvania. It's a state of mind. Oh, and one more thing. I take an experimental and iterative approach to the podcast. The episode that you hear today may be updated and improved tomorrow, next week, or even next year. With your feedback and participation, I hope Sensylvania will be a unique and engaging podcast environment which grows and evolves over time to be the kind of place that keeps us, you and I, visiting often. The main skill is to keep from getting lost. Since the roads are used only by local people who know them by sight, nobody complains if the junctions aren't posted. And often they aren't. And when they are, it's usually a small sign hiding unobtrusively in the weeds and that's all. Country road sign makers seldom tell you twice. If you miss that sign in the weeds, that's your problem, not theirs. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Chapter 1. I'd like to begin by commenting that my footnotes to Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance essays are probably best appreciated by those who've read the book once or twice already. Clearly, some prior familiarity with the text will make my comments and observations more readily accessible, but I'm going to try to take an approach that will render my analysis of the book of interest even if you haven't or don't intend to read the book, or for that matter, even to those who may not actually be particularly interested in either Zen or motorcycles, though I suspect relatively few people who may take time to listen to these ramblings of mine will fit that description. As you may have noticed, this episode is titled Footnotes to Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance Part 3 and is part of an as-yet-indeterminate series of explorations of the book. If you haven't yet had the opportunity to listen to the earlier parts, you may wish to go back before proceeding on to the things I have to say here. 
backtracking like that isn't in any way obligatory, but there may be some comments and insights from that earlier analysis that may be helpful in this ongoing study. Otherwise, I hope you'll stay with me for a ride into the ideas, ethics, and values that this book has to offer. The first chapter of Robert Persig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is perhaps the most approachable in a book that can be a rather off-putting and alienating read. For that reason, and also since I think it's important to point out how densely packed the book is right from the beginning, I'm going to take a slow ride through the first chapter. I'll be exploring and considering the many insights and layered meanings or messages that may be found along the way. What I'm going to do in this third part of the series is proceed from the narrator's observation of the duck hunting sloughs that he and his riding companions are passing on their motorcycles. I'll continue for the next several pages of the first chapter. In my editions of the book, that's roughly pages four through six of the white covered Harper Perennial Modern Classics edition, or pages 12 through 14 of the green covered edition. You may find photos of both editions on the zensylvania.com website or simply follow along in whatever version you happen to have. I'm going to overlap my current reading with a previous segment that was discussed in the previous uh, part of this essay series since I think this provides some valuable insight into the author's style, particularly in the pacing used when shifting topics or perspectives from, from one paragraph to the next. So onwards we go with a, a very brief reading from Robert Persig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Chapter 1. At age 11, you don't get very impressed with red-winged blackbirds. You have to get older for that. For me, this is all mixed with memories that he doesn't have. Cold mornings long ago when the marsh grass had turned brown and cattails were waving in the northwest wind. The pungent smell then was from muck stirred up by hip boots while we were getting in position for the sun to come up and the duck season to open. Or winters when the sloughs were frozen over and dead and I could walk across the ice and snow between the dead cattails and see nothing but grey skies and dead things and cold. The blackbirds were gone then, but now in July they're back and everything is at its livest and every foot of these sloughs is humming and cricking and buzzing and chirping, a whole community of millions of living things living out their lives in a kind of benign continuum. You see things vacationing on a motorcycle in a way that is completely different from any other. In a car, you're always in a compartment. Because you're used to it, you don't realize that through the car window everything you see is just more TV. You're a passive observer and it is all moving by you boringly in a frame. On a cycle, the frame is gone. You're completely in contact with it all. You're in the scene, not just watching it anymore, and the sense of presence is overwhelming. That concrete whizzing by five inches below your feet is the real thing, the same stuff you walk on. It's right there, so blurred you can't focus on it, yet you can put your foot down and touch it anytime, and the whole thing, the whole experience, is never removed from immediate consciousness. 
Chris and I are traveling to Montana with some friends riding up ahead and maybe headed further than that. Plans are deliberately indefinite, more to travel than to arrive anywhere. We're just vacationing. Secondary roads are preferred. Paved country roads are the best. State highways are next. Freeways are the worst. We want to make good time. But for now, this is measured with the emphasis on good rather than time. And when you make that shift in emphasis, the whole approach changes. Twisting hilly roads are long in terms of seconds, but are much more enjoyable on a cycle where you bank into turns and don't get swung from side to side in any compartment. Roads with little traffic are more enjoyable as well as safer. Roads free of drive-ins and billboards are better. Roads where groves and meadows and orchards and lawns come almost to the shoulder, where kids wave to you when you ride by, where people look from their porches to see who it is, where when you stop to ask directions or information, the answer tends to be longer than what you want rather than short, where people ask where you're from and how long you've been riding. It was some years ago that my wife and I and our friends first began to catch on to these roads. We took them once in a while for a variety or for a shortcut to another main highway. And each time the scenery was grand and we left the road with a feeling of relaxation and enjoyment. We did this time after time before realizing what should have been obvious. These roads are truly different from the main ones. The whole pace of life and personality of the people who live along them are different. They're not going anywhere. They're not too busy to be courteous. The hereness and nowness of things is something they know all about. It's the others, the ones who moved to the cities years ago and their lost offspring who have all but forgotten it. The discovery was a real find. I've wondered why it took us so long to catch on. We saw it, and yet we didn't see it. Or rather, we were trained and not to see it. Conned, perhaps, into thinking that the real action was metropolitan, and all this was just boring hinterland. It was a puzzling thing. The truth knocks on the door, and you say, Go away. I'm looking for the truth. And so it goes away. Puzzling. But once we caught on, of course, nothing could keep us off these roads, weekends, evenings, vacations. We have become real secondary road motorcycle buffs and found there are things you learn as you go. We have learned how to spot the good ones on a map. For example, if the line wiggles, that's good. That means hills. If it appears to be the main route from a town to a city, that's bad. The best ones always connect nowhere with nowhere and have an alternate that gets you there quicker. If you're going northeast from a large town, you never go straight out of town for any long distance. You go out and then start jogging north, then east, then north again. And soon you are on a secondary route that only the local people use. The main skill is to keep from getting lost. Since the roads are used only by local people who know them by sight, nobody complains if the junctions aren't posted, and often they aren't. When they are, it's usually a small sign hiding unobtrusively in the weeds, and that's all. Country road sign makers seldom tell you twice. 
If you miss that sign in the weeds, that's your problem, not theirs. Moreover, you discover that the highway maps are often inaccurate about country roads, and from time to time, you find your country road takes you onto a two-rudder, and then a single-rudder, and then into a pasture and stops, or else it takes you into some farmer's backyard. So we navigate mostly by dead reckoning, and deduction from what clues we find. I keep a compass in one pocket for overcast days when the sun doesn't show directions and have the map mounted in a special carrier on top of the gas tank where I can keep track of miles from the last junction and know what to look for. With those tools and a lack of pressure to get somewhere, it works out fine. And we just about have America all to ourselves. On Labor Day and Memorial Day weekends, we travel for miles on these roads without seeing another vehicle. Then cross a federal highway and look at cars strung bumper to bumper to the horizon. Scowling faces inside, kids crying in the back seat. I keep wishing there were some way to tell them something, but they scowl and appear to be in a hurry. And there isn't. Well, I hope you enjoyed that short reading for the section we're going to investigate in this episode of Zensylvania. These paragraphs uh, involved in this current reading contain several observations and passages that are very near and dear to the aesthetically oriented hearts and imaginations of motorcycle riders. At least that's what I found when uh, reading reviews online and people's comments. In part two of this footnote series, I commented that observations of temperature and weather play a significant role in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I also said that this was a particular consideration for motorcycle riders compared to car drivers and that even the worst or most extreme weather conditions are not directly experienced when you're inside a protective climate controlled cabin of a car. But a motorcycle rider always experiences weather and is therefore far more aware of and sensitive to it. I would be surprised if any motorcycle riding fans of the book weren't immediately reminded of the first paragraph. You see things vacationing on a motorcycle in a way that is completely different from any other. In a car, you're always in a compartment and because you're used to it, you don't realize that through the car window, everything you see is just more TV. You're a passive observer and it's all moving by you boringly in a frame. I've driven just about every form of road-going vehicle that a person can drive. Car, convertible, SUV, hatchback, sedan, pickup truck, van, cargo van, even 18-wheeler tractor-trailer, and yes, a motorcycle. This observation that sitting in the com compartment of a car is comparable to watching TV is relatively true when compared to riding a motorcycle. A car's cabin is primarily a place of comfort, convenience, and protection. The earliest road-going vehicles began as open carriages, not very different from a horse and buggy type carriage. As time passed, a protective bubble grew around passengers, one that increasingly protected, comforted, and separated them from the road. Currently, that protective bubble has grown a vast and complicated array of technologies and systems that have done nothing other than to fulfill Persick's claim. 
Not only do we have windscreens and roofs to keep weather out, heating and air conditioning to control the temperature and cabin air filters to keep the air we breathe free of the character of the air outside the vehicle, we also have seat belts, GPS systems, cameras, sensors, and who knows what all else to help navigation, satellite and cellular telephone communication systems to communicate around the planet. And most new vehicles now include small television screens, which include significant entertainment. And then of course there's self-driving vehicles emerging now as well. Now we don't even need to watch the TV outside the car's windscreen. We have one or more of those devices right inside the vehicle. If a motorcycle is a metaphor for the self, the weather a metaphor for the events and times of our lives, the road a metaphor for the way we choose to live and the riding, the act of living, riding in a protective bubble where we are isolated from the weather and mostly ignorant of the road may well be one of the most apt metaphors of all. Just as our vehicles are becoming faster and more isolating, so it sometimes seems are our lives moving along faster and more isolated from the act of living. Life itself seems to have become just more TV. Riding a motorcycle, on the other hand, is never just more TV. For a contemporary reader of Zen and the Art, that is to say, someone reading the book in the 2020s, the narrator's reference to the world moving by boringly in a frame has a special connotation, which I'm not entirely certain was fully mature at the time of the book's publication in 1974. Almost certainly it was nowhere near as common as it is today. While I think that I've made clear that I'm not an expert in anything at all, I think I have enough generalist ability to describe what framing is all about. So here it goes. In the social sciences, this idea of framing is a set of theories and perspectives on how individuals, groups, and societies organize, perceive, and communicate about reality. It basically states that a frame can be put around a topic, issue, or event, which sets the context and guides the perceptions of a viewer. In other words, it's a tool of rhetoric. Well, given Persig's interest in rhetoric, the inclusion of that descriptive word in this particular observation is wonderfully meaningful. The fact that the narrator describes things going by boringly in a frame is, perhaps, something we all need to consider more deeply. It is just possible that anything that goes by within a frame, however novel it may be at first, will ultimately be unengaging and boring. It is also just possible that frames are by nature of their design, contrary to everything that we actually need and aspire to. The narrator features the issue of framing when he goes on in the subsequent paragraph. It's a paragraph that is so direct and complete that it's tempting to simply conclude that there isn't anything more to be said. But I think it is necessary to point out how continuous, how much momentum or forward progress there is in the writing style. Each paragraph picks up from its predecessor to take the reader further down the conceptual roads they travel. The next paragraph picks up as follows. On a cycle, the frame is gone. You're completely in contact with it all. 
you're in the scene, not just watching it anymore. And the sense of presence is overwhelming. That concrete whizzing by five inches below your foot is the real thing. The same stuff you walk on. It's right there, so blurred you can't focus on it. Yet you can put your foot down and touch it any time. And the whole thing, the whole experience, is never removed from immediate consciousness. The paragraph is almost as concrete as the concrete it mentions. The events of our lives seem always to be whizzing by. In part two of this series, I argued that Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance begins in media rays as a way to emphasize that we are always right there living in the middle of our lives. Usually we're so caught up in the thick of things that we don't recognize this fact. But every now and then it does catch up to us. All of the hustle and activity that led up to the moment and all the hustle and activity that we are yet to experience is all around and we've dropped into the middle of it. Those moments aren't really different or separate from the rest of our lives, except for our recognition that we are always in the middle of things. Perhaps we may even find that living that present moment, living all of our present moments, rather than being caught up and swept away by the distraction of daily events, that this is what we need to focus on. It seems to me the narrator is saying something similar when he says, that concrete whizzing by five inches below your foot is the real thing. The same stuff you walk on, it's right there. So blurred you can't focus on it, yet you can put your foot down and touch it any time. And the whole thing, the whole experience, is never removed from immediate consciousness. Next, in our selected passage, we come upon some of the explanation of the motorcycle journey in the first three sentences of the paragraph. We're told that Chris and I are traveling to Montana with some friends, riding up ahead, and maybe headed further than that. Plans are deliberately indefinite, more to travel than to arrive anywhere. We are just vacationing. These sentences tell us where the riders are going and that there are some other companions along for the ride, and that's valuable background information in order to drive the plot forward. These sentences let us know that the ride is intended to be relaxed and carefree. There's no definite schedule or itinerary. The riders are just vacationing. Now this phrase, just vacationing, is actually rather ironic. Later in the book, the narrator recounts a person's struggle to develop a definition for the word quality. This is, of course, a central theme of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. You can find the passage I'm referring to in chapter 19. The person struggled with the difference in meaning between quality is just what you like and the words quality is what you like. I ran through that very quickly and I want to re-highlight. There's a difference between quality is just what you like and quality is what you like and the conclusion in that chapter 19 was that the word just is a pejorative we can set aside exploration of those concerns for when we look at chapter 19. in the meantime i wanted to draw attention to the use of the word just in this early sentence we are just vacationing in context of that later concern over the pejorative nature of just, it's used in precisely the same way. 
for those of us who must recognize a difference between our vacation time and the time that's not spent on vacation, it seems to me that vacationing time is more highly prized and valued. So using a pejorative, we are just vacationing, is completely wrong. When we're vacationing, we're not making plans. Viewed from a certain angle, saying that we, we're just vacationing diminishes the importance of the time spent and of the approach. But it is important that he wrote it that way. If he had written, we are vacationing because we value our vacation time so much, we are avoiding detailed schedules and itineraries because that is the only way we can properly relax and live each moment. It wouldn't, would have been more directly explanatory. But the way it's phrased, indeed, is often the way we view our vacations and relaxation. He's focusing and echoing how we might think of it ourselves. That vacationing is unimportant time, time not demanded of others or by others, and therefore, shamefacedly, we describe our most valued commodity as something less than it is. Then the paragraph continues, secondary roads are preferred, paved country roads are the best, state highways are next, freeways are worst. We want to make good time, but for now, this is measured with the emphasis on good rather than time. And when you make that shift in emphasis, the whole approach changes. Twisting hilly roads are long in terms of seconds, but are much more enjoyable on a cycle where you bank into turns and don't get swung from side to side in any compartment. Roads with little traffic are more enjoyable as well as safer. Roads free of drive-ins and billboards are better. Roads where groves and meadows and orchards and lawns come almost to the row shoulder where kids wave to you when you ride by, where people look from their porches to see who it is where when you stop to ask directions or information, the answer tends to be longer than you want rather than short, where people ask where you're from and how long you've been riding. When the narrator emphasizes that the writer's focus is on good rather than time, we immediately recognize the vacation mindset where one is focused on enjoyment and, and satisfaction of the miles that they're traveling rather than in racking up large numbers of miles themselves. Of course, these comments should also be taken as a statement of intent relative to reading Zen and the art itself, a book whose subtitle is An Inquiry into Values. The emphasis of the book should be one exploring the good rather than the plot that unfolds. It can be taken as a kind of statement that you shouldn't be entering Zam for the story. Honestly, there isn't all that much story to keep track of. The depiction of the types of roads is a symbolic expression of the different paths in life that a person may choose to take. And what is a billboard? It's the intrusion of some other entity's priorities into the landscape of one's life. It is, to echo my earlier comments, a kind of framing. What is a porch? Well, the Stoics took their name from the painted porch, but that's probably a fortunate, though not entirely meaningless coincidence. Porches are areas where people rest, and for the most part, people come closest to a state of meditation. It's a place where people just sit. The passage that follows establishes a relationship to the kind of road, both metaphorical and literal. 
It was some years ago that my wife and I and our friends first began to catch on to these roads. We took them once in a while for variety or for a shortcut to another main highway. And each time the scenery was grand and we left the road with a feeling of relaxation and enjoyment. We did this time after time before realizing what should have been obvious. These roads are truly different from the main ones. The whole pace of life and personality of the people who live along them are different. They're not going anywhere. They're not too busy to be courteous. The hereness and nowness of things is something they know all about. It's the others, the ones who've moved to the city years ago and their lost offspring, who have all but forgotten it. The discovery was a real find. This passage contains a sentence that contributes to the sense of irony or amusement that some modern readers approach the book with. The hereness and nowness of things is something they all know about. Expressed as it is, the sentence does seem like something from the groovy groovy 1970s. Clearly, the sentence could have been written differently, such as, the immediacy of things is something they know all about, or the immediacy of things is something they fully understand. While such a rendering may strike a more contemporary tone for a reader um, as more serious, it also doesn't separate and identify the time and space elements that uh, Persig wanted to demonstrate. When you try, it's not all that easy to put these same sentiments a different way without losing that separation of uh, time and space. It also contains a very difficult sentence. It begins with, it's the others, the ones who've moved to the cities years ago and their lost offspring who have all but forgotten it. It should be understood that the narrator can only include himself and his family as being part of the ones who've moved to the cities. After all, they only discovered these alternatives and explored them as tourists. So his own children are among the lost offspring. This reference, as close it is as it is to the limited narrative of the book, shouldn't overlook as the narrator and Piercing seems to be saying something about the character of Chris in the book, but more broadly about anyone born into contemporary society. In a sense, anyone growing up in contemporary urban settings, the ways of life that are available are lost children. Persig is saying that any contemporary individual with the mainstream lifestyles that we have is a lost child. So what is a lost child? Well, so far, Persig in the book has only stated that lost children have all but forgotten the hereness and nowness of things. And that may well be good enough, particularly as it relates to Zen. It's a big statement and as such should be recognized as a kind of signpost, one of those signposts in the weeds that Persig says, or the narrator says, if you've missed it, that's your problem, not his. It's a signpost which requires the reader to look around and see what's coming. I've wondered why it took us so long to catch on. We saw it and yet we didn't see it or rather we were trained not to see it, conned perhaps 
into thinking that the real action was metropolitan and all this was just boring hinterland. It was a puzzling thing. The truth knocks on the door and you say, go away, I'm looking for the truth. And so it goes away. Puzzling. The narrator demonstrates what being a lost child means. It means not catching on, not seeing things, being trained, in fact, not to see things, and being trained to believe that the modern contemporary digital age in 2020 is the real thing and reality is a boring hinterland. We've been trained to say, go away, I'm looking for the truth. And Persick provides one of his most often repeated observations, one that readers have great affection for. The truth knocks on the door and you say, go away, I'm looking for the truth, and so it goes away. These observations seem to be more and more true with the advent and proliferation of digital technologies. On the one hand, and biological technologies on the other, which seem to be the real action, while the reality of living in the actual moment of sitting on the porch are considered boring hinterlands. In the next passage, Persick emphasizes that he and his family visit the better part of life when they can. And for most of us, this is reality. We visit alternate paths on a part-time basis as non-experts, because that's what we can do, or all that we're willing to do. On the Zensylvania podcast, I've said that I'm indeed a non-expert. I've never really found it in myself to be a specialist, putting all of my time into motorcycles, philosophy, Zen, meditation, Tai Chi, or what have you. I go to these things as often as I can, though. Once we caught on, of course, nothing could keep us off these roads. Weekends, evenings, vacations, we have become real secondary road motorcycle buffs and found there are things you learn as you go. We have learned how to spot the good ones on a map, for example. If the line wiggles, that's good. That means hills. If it appears to be the main route from a town to a city, that's bad. The best ones always connect nowhere with nowhere and have an alternate route that gets you there quicker. If you are going northeast from a large town, you never go straight out of town for any long distance. You go out and then start jogging north, then east, then north again. And soon you are on a secondary road that only the local people use. Connect nowhere to nowhere is a valuable repetition of the earlier a kind of nowhere famous for nothing at all, which we examined in part two of this series. It's a recommendation of conceptual hinterlands as the valuable areas. Secondary routes that only the local people use can be considered to be the esoteric practices of particular communities of thought and doctrine. Maybe it's a particular kind or right of methodology. It's a particular way of living and navigating certain kinds of life. The next passage is an explanation that if a person follows some ideological or philosophical roads, they may in fact lead to empty fields with nothing and nobody in them. But it contains an important idea from the book. 
The main skill is to keep from getting lost. Since the roads are used only by local people who know them by sight, nobody complains. If the junctions aren't posted, and often they aren't. When they are, it's usually a small sign hiding unobtrusively in the weeds, and that's all. Country road sign makers seldom tell you twice. If you miss that sign in the weeds, that's your problem, not theirs. Moreover, you discover that the highway maps are often inaccurate about country roads. And from time to time, you find your country road takes you into a two-rudder, then a single-rudder, and then into a pasture and stops. Or else it takes you into some farmer's backyard. The narrator's comment that country road sign makers seldom tell you twice should be taken as a caution about reading the book. Persig is the country road sign maker. He isn't often going to tell you twice when to look for a crossing in the road. You, the reader, need to be paying attention unless you're already familiar with the territory. Persig is telling you that if you don't get it, that's your problem and not his. Whether it's Zen, rhetoric, his metaphysics of quality, or what have you, it's up to you, the reader, to navigate and think your way through. Highway maps are often inaccurate. It harkens to the author's note where Persig talks about the book providing little in the way of motorcycle maintenance and not being authoritative about Zen either. It's a bit of fun. It's an extension of the koan. The book is itself inaccurate in some places and may lead to a kind of conceptual pasture where there is famously little to be found other than cow manure. So we navigate mostly by dead reckoning and deduction from what clues we find. I keep a compass in one pocket for overcast days when the sun doesn't show directions and have the map mounted in a special carrier on top of the gas tank where I can keep track of miles from the last junction and know what to look for. With those tools and a lack of pressure to get somewhere, it works out fine and we just about have America all to ourselves. Dead reckoning is an interesting thing. It's the process of calculating one's position, particularly at sea, but it applies anywhere, by estimating the direction and distance traveled rather than by using landmarks, astronomical observations, or electronic navigation methods. It's the ability to know where you are and where things are based on that and that alone. Some people do not have any dead reckoning at all. When I say that, I'm referring to both in terms of geophysical space, when they're navigating the physical world, as well as conceptually. Some people don't have a sense of where they are and what kind of distance they've traveled. A compass, of course, is a powerful metaphor, but doesn't actually get used in the book very often. Most often we think of as a compass as taking a bearing from some external and concrete thing. We can think of in the book a moral compass and what does that mean? Persig, or more accurately the narrator, says he keeps one in his pocket, yet he still mostly focuses on dead reckoning. In other words, knowing where he was and how far he's come. The statement having America to pursue to themselves, it's a statement of freedom. 
It's a sentiment whose value can be readily felt during the pandemic lockdown of 2020 and 2021, and now certainly into 2022. There are times and places when the sentiment of freedom is very much absent. It all leads you to the question as a person, do you feel that you have autonomy to go into the world and be who you want to be, to know where you are and have the freedom to get from here to there? And the final passage is a contrast from dead reckoning your way into life and what most people actually do. They're stuck on the highway and unable to proceed. In the final passage that we're going to look at, the narrator talks about long weekends, a time when lots of people get on the highway with a focus on time rather than good. They want to get away and back, but ultimately they can't. They're stuck not enjoying the here and now because they're unwilling to get off the main ideological roads and spend time in the hinterlands. They want to be somewhere passage goes like this. On Labor Day and Memorial Day weekends, we travel for miles on these roads without seeing another vehicle, then cross a federal highway and look at cars strung bumper to bumper to the horizon, scowling faces inside, kids crying in the back seat. I keep wishing that there were some way to tell them something, but they scowl and appear to be in a hurry. And there isn't. Well, there isn't because the people in the cars are lost children who are stuck on a high-speed highway that isn't going anywhere. And that is an incredibly powerful metaphor and explanation. Well, this isn't a particularly hopeful way to end this Zensylvania exploration, but it may be an important one because the answers to some questions might be deeply, fundamentally important to what you do next. So here are some questions. Is much of your life just more TV? Are there significant portions of your life where the frame is gone? Are you focused on good or are you focused on time? Do you tell truth to go away when it knocks on the door? Is the course of contemporary society producing lost children? Do you think you are a lost child? Do you have the ability and the courage to dead reckon a way forward. Do you know where you are, where you've come from, and where you might be going? Thank you for joining me in this part of Pennsylvania. I hope that you've enjoyed your time listening to the podcast as much as I did putting it together. You can find text versions of Zensylvania stories and essays at www.zensylvania.com. That's www.zensylvania.com. I expect to release one new episode each month for the foreseeable future. If you like the content you've heard so far, please subscribe, tell your friends, and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd also love to hear your thoughts. My email address is zensylvaniapodcast at gmail.com or 
you may wish to use the link in the episode description box to leave a voice message, which we might then use in this or a future episode. If you'd like to support the Zensylvania podcast, you can find us on Patreon. Thank you again for joining me in Zensylvania. It's a state of mind.